0: To the conclusion of Scripture Alive, I want to go to a lo- another location that my wife and I visited, and but a, a location I can almost, I can not a, almost, I can guarantee that if we go to Israel, you'll go there, okay? Because this is one of the prime places. We're going to look today at the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, and and on here look, this morning uh, we do have a map. Let's let throw it up there, the, the map. Uh, this is kind of the picture sure of of. It's, there it goes. The picture, of Jer- this is old Jerusalem. This is not Jerusalem today. This is Jerusalem in, in, in Jesus' day, which is smaller now. But the old city, it's still big. It's still a huge area. This is the wall around it. Here's the, the temple courts and everything. Last week, we were up in this area called the Mount of Olives, which is a large mount uh, right, right near Jerusalem. And this is the Kidron Valley that runs down through here. Uh, very mountainous areas. And right here, right there, is Gethsemane. It's at the foot of the of the Mount of Olives and it's uh, become it's a very famous place in Scripture. Let me give you some pictures of what it kind of looks like. Uh, we're just going to go through four or five pictures. It's it's what it looks like. It's not a garden like uh, like our garden back here, okay? It's not that well kept. Uh, I, there is parts of it that's incredibly well kept, but it's a garden with olive trees and all kinds of things. Let's go to the next one. This is a more well kept part of the Garden of Gethsemane uh, down there. Uh, I doubt it looked like this in Jesus's day. You know, it probably looked more like the last picture in Jesus' day. Uh, And then also in this area, too, let's go to the next picture. Uh, There's this church that's built right next to it called the Church of All Nations. It's also called the Church of the Agony. And you can guess why. Uh, It's built in a site, they believe, uh, there or near there where Jesus was in the garden. And if you go there, it's right next to all this garden stuff you see. And inside the church, this next picture shows, uh, this is actually a rock here. Now, Do they know if it's the rock that Jesus prayed on? Tradition says yes. There's no way of knowing for certain. They don't have a photograph of that, you know, so to know what happened. But this is what, this is inside the church. This is a huge rock, and, and, and millions of pilgrims come through every year to the Church of All Nations, the Church of the Agony, and go through. We went into the church and saw that, and many people go and, and, and pray and touch the rock and whatever here in the church. And this is where Jesus, this is where, the, the reason it's really famous, this area, is because of, of Jesus going there uh, prior to his, his death on a cross and his resurrection, going there and praying. And that's what we're going to talk about today, uh, this place as well. Uh, this, this place, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, for most of the gospel accounts, um, we see what I would call the attractive side of Jesus. I mean by that, it's the side that really we like, the side of, uh, of Jesus, this power to heal sick people, um, his compassion for the weak and poor, the authority he had when he, when he spoke uh, the word of God, uh, we very rarely in Scripture see the, the part of Jesus that we're going to talk about today. The part where we see Jesus going through a struggle. Because we always think of Jesus as everything being pretty easy. You know, he's Jesus the Son of God, and so he never struggles. That's no, not true, because we see that today very clearly in Matthew chapter 26. So if you have your Bibles with you today, in whatever format, electronic, paper, whatever, turn to Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to look at some passages today, and I'm going to refer to a couple other ones as well. But we want to, want to talk about this. Now, the interesting thing, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, is the word Gethsemane, the word Gethsemane in, in Greek is actually made up of two words. And basically what it means, the, the word itself is, means oil press. Oil press, it means our, our olive press. That's what the name means. And it's going to put, time this, we'll show you a little bit later, a, very, a video clip of, of something that will help you to understand how that comes across and how it also ties in with the story we're going to talk about today. Now today, as we talk about this, I want to share with you three things we see Jesus, three situations or three kind of things where we see Jesus that we normally don't see Jesus in. And the first one is this. The first one is today we see Jesus in sorrow. He's sorrowful. I mean, we've seen him before when when his uh, good friend Lazarus had died, and and he went there and he wept with uh, Mary and Martha. But very rarely do we see this side of Jesus. And so in Matthew 26, verses 36 and 37, it says that Jesus... Uh, went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he says to his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, then he says this in verse 38, he says, Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. We're not used to seeing this part of Jesus, are we? We're used to seeing Jesus heal people, being in authority, you know, all this kind of thing, teaching people, following him, not a Jesus who, who was uh, sorrowful and distressed, and, and he asked his friends to come along with him. Now, the question is, for us, when I look at scripture, I ask the question, well, why was he so distressed? Why? W-? Now, some of you know the scripture, you know the answer already, why he was distressed, but I want to point that out to you today. Why was he in such a a horrible place at this time in his life. Well, because several reasons. Firstly, because he understood what was about to happen to him. It was really a sad night for Jesus, because earlier on, uh, while they were eating, uh, in verse 21, he says this, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. One of the 12 who had been with him for three years, it's kind of like, can you imagine having your closest friends and one of them you know is going to betray you? That very night? But that's what he knows is going to happen. They would deliberately turn his back on Jesus. And not only worse than that, they would do it for money. I mean, just think about that. How would you feel if your best friend betrayed you for some for some money? Now not think they would get much for you, but you know, but the reality is, is, is you know Jesus that he knew that was going to happen. And then when, later on in Scripture, when he went to the Mount of Olives, which, once again, Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane is part of that, Jesus said to his disciples later on, a few verses later on verse 31, he says, this very night you will all fall away. One of you is going to betray me and sell me out for money, but all of you will, will fall away. In other words, all of you will abandon me, And Jesus knew that they would all turn and run, all of them, fearing for their own lives and and leaving Jesus to face death on his own. All of them, after three years of living and working together. Now, it it was extremely sad for Jesus, and not simply because of this, but because he knew what was about to happen to him. Because just a few verses earlier in the first two verses of chapter 26, Jesus, uh, two days before this time, when he's talking to his disciples, he says this, he said, Jesus said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man, who's he talking, who's the Son of Man? It's Jesus. That's another term for Jesus. The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Not only did Jesus know he was going to die, he knew how he would be dying, by crucifixion, which was the cruelest most tortuous way for a person to die. Death by crucifixion was designed to produce the greatest degree of shame, to inflict the maximum amount of pain, and for the longest period of time it's to be stretched out. It's not something that's quick and easy. And Jesus knew that was about to happen to him. So you understand why he's struggling. Friends are betraying him. He's going to die on a cross, a horrible physical death. And so it's no wonder in verse 39 it says that he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed. That was his response to all of this. Now according to, the, the this is also recorded, this story is recorded in Luke as well. And according to Luke, Jesus was in such anguish that it says in verse, uh, Luke 22:44 that his sweat was like drops of blood falling on the ground. I don't know what that means exactly. Was it literally blood? Was it you know? Was it was it so intense that that was the way it was? It was whatever. But the reality is that Jesus was in a place here because of the struggle and his agony that he was going through. That, that he was uh was such such sorrow that he was that he was in this condition. So he was sorrowful. Secondly, we see Jesus in struggle. He was struggling with what he was to do. And this is Jesus once again, folks, uh, because we see in verse 26, verse, uh, Matthew 26, 39, he says, Jesus prays, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. I mean, how many of you would sit there and say, how many of us, any of us would simply say, God, I know this is going to happen, but can, if it's possible, can this be taken away from me? You understand the situation here with Jesus. We see is as Jesus' struggle, because the thing that we so often forget about is that Jesus was fully human, along with being fully God. And how that works, I don't know. So don't come to ask me, because I don't know. And if you've got a great answer for that, you know, I'll send them to you, and you can answer that question. But the reality is, the Bible says that he was fully human at this time. It means that he had all the feelings and all the emotions and all everything, and when he was on a cross, he understood and felt every bit of pain that we would have felt if we were were there in the same way, and so the humanity part of him will cry out against such pain, yet his spirit belongs to and wants to longs to obey his father's will. The flesh does not want to go to the cross, but his spirit wants to accomplish the father's plan to save the world. And so Jesus experienced the struggle here, and he was honest to the father. There was no covering up in a real sense uh, or acting tough. Uh, He wasn't trying to be macho and go like, "Man, I can take it," you know. Like some guys will do sometimes. We act like, you know, if you hurt, go ahead and act like you hurt. Okay, it's all right. Now don't go around and whine all the time, okay? But you know, it's all right, guys. To if if you know, you don't have to buck it up and and act like you're tough all the time, you know. And Jesus didn't, you know. If Jesus, uh, I think Jesus was the most manly man that ever lived. But it's not the kind of false manly man that we see so often in our culture today. He shared what was really on his heart. So he didn't try to act tough. Jesus didn't. So share your struggles with God if you're going through a struggle. Now, what did he do to stay in this midst of the struggle? What did he do to stand strong? How did he respond? Well, that's why Jesus said to Peter in verse 41. He says says to watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, he was talking to Peter, but he was also talking about it. He says, Peter, this is what I'm doing, man. I am, I, am, I am praying. I'm watching. I'm being aware of what's going on here because I don't want to fall into the temptation of saying to God, no, I don't want to do your will because he was struggling here. Don't think that Jesus wasn't struggling. To say that Jesus wasn't struggling goes against what the Scripture teaches us, that he knew everything and experienced everything that we experienced, all the temptations and all the struggles of life. See, very often, I don't know about you guys, but very often the flesh, the old self, will, t- will tell us to do things our, our own way against God's will, the easy way. Will it not? Even when we're following Christ and try to do his will, so often the world will try to drag us back into stuff. But our spirit knows the will of God, and and so often we have this battle, this struggle going on in our lives that we want to do things right. So Jesus said, this is what you do then when you're having a struggle. He said, watch and pray so you won't fall into temptation. That's the formula. Watch and pray so that you will not gratify the natures of the flesh. So often we think we just have to buck it up. And we just kind of, kind of like, we just hang in there. Well, no. Watch and pray. Be honest with God that you're struggling, but be aware that it's not that it's not uh, uh, your own power that you can overcome this. And so he does this. Now, this was more than just a physical struggle, though. It was it was a spiritual struggle for Jesus as well. Jesus wasn't thinking just, which which would have been enough, just about the nails piercing through his hands and feet. He was also, because in his death, he would be taking on, and this is the part that was so, it's hard to understand, he was taking on himself, the weight of all the sin of all of humanity. Now, I don't know how that works, but have you ever been in a time in your life when you were oppressed and you felt like everything in the world was, you felt the weight of the world upon you? I've heard people say that before. And if you go through that, just think about that multiplied by a zillion. And that was where Jesus was spiritually at this time. That's why he was struggling. He was sorrowful, but he was also struggling here as well. Because in his death, he would be taken on the sin of all humanity. It, it kind of describes this in the Old Testament, in the, in the letter of the book of Isaiah, in verse 30, chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, it says it this way. It says, he was, talking about Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's a description of what Jesus did for us, uh, even back in the Old Testament times. The weight upon his shoulders wasn't physical weight, it was the weight of your sins and my sins, and to say it in plain words this is this is why that happened the reason he had to do that is because it's my fault and it's your fault our sins sent him to the cross let's sit here and think about that for a while i love i love one of my favorite writers because he's so descriptive is max Lacato. i don't know if any of you read max Lacato's stuff but Max Lucado is an incredibly descriptive writer, storyteller. And he has a book that uh, really goes along with this. And it's called, And the Angels Were Silent. And I looked at a couple of uh, scenes in there. And he describes this scene well in Jesus' life when the struggle he's going through. He says, The final encounter of the battle has begun. As Jesus looks at the city of Jerusalem across the valley, because once again, the, the place, the Garden of Gethsemane, is, is on a hill looking across to Jerusalem. As Jesus looks at the city of Jerusalem, he sees what the disciples can't. He sees the evil one preparing for the final encounter. Hell is breaking loose, and history records it as a battle of the Jews against Jesus. It wasn't, though. It was a battle of God against Satan, and Jesus knew it. He knew that before the war was over, he would be taken captive. He knew that before victory would come, there would come defeat. He knew that before the, throne would, before the throne would come the cup. He knew that before the light of Sunday would come the blackness of Friday, and he is afraid. That's not how we normally see Jesus, right? But that's how we see Jesus in Matthew 26. It was kind of like soldiers moving into war. I've never experienced this myself, but I've talked to a lot of you guys who, who a lot of guys over the years who have experienced going into war, going into battle. And no one feels good at such a time. Yeah, I'm ready to go to war. You know, I mean, we, they may be gung-ho sometimes, but inside, my brother-in-law, who was, who was a, a commander in, uh, in the Air Force in, in Desert Storm, shared with me that more people, he said people who never will follow Christ, who never admit that they're fearful when they get ready to go into battle changes who they are he said he spent more of his time and my brother-in-law is a christian he said i spent more of my time m- uh, mentoring and encouraging and praying for people that had never done that in their whole life right before they were to fly their, in their first mission not knowing what was going to happen so the reality is jesus jesus uh, went through this struggle he went through sorrow went through a struggle but thirdly how did jesus respond well we see jesus in submission in submission because Jesus begins to pray, it says in the garden, and he prayed three times. The first time Jesus prays, he says it this way. He says, he prays, and this is the outcome, yet not as I will, but as you will, talking to the Father. He goes through sorrow, goes through struggle, to struggle, the outcome of that is to say, Jesus, not as I will, but as you will. And then he goes, and he goes back to his disciples, and they're kind of like, like staying awake. And then the next thing he does, he went away a second time, and he prays, and this is, the, this is where he does, he says, he prays this, he says, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He goes a little further with his, with his uh, uh, commitment to God, with his submission to God. And Max Liketo says it once again And The Angels Were silent, he says this, he, knows, he says this about Jesus, he knows what it's like to beg God to change his mind, and to hear God say so gently but firmly, No. For that is what God says to Jesus, and Jesus accepts the answer. That's what submission is. When we want it our way, and we pray, and God says, no, that's not going to be your way, it's going to be another way, and we say, well, God, your will be done. That's what Jesus does. That's what the struggle needs to be in our life as well. It's not that we don't struggle with God, we don't struggle with Jesus, but sometimes we have to understand that the struggle is not going to be our will done, but God's will being done. And that's where Jesus was in this. Now this is a classic example of submission, doing the will of God, not our own. But in the middle of this, I found it interesting because if you look at passages, not only in Mark, Matthew, but in Luke as well, Luke says it this way. He says it this way. He says, while this was, the struggle was going on, and while Jesus was coming to submission, it wasn't easy. And so in verse 20, uh, Luke twenty-two forty-three, it says that an angel from heaven appeared to him, to Jesus, and strengthened him. I don't know about you, isn't that beautiful? He obeys the Father, he submits to God's will, but God knows that he can't do it on his own. You know, one of the things the Bible tells us clearly as believers that God does not leave us as forsaken persons. It says he will give us the strength to endure. Sometimes we don't believe that. But in turning to him and seeking him, he obeys the Father to do what the Father says, and the Father provides Jesus what he needs the most, strength. And what Jesus needed, he received graciously from the Father. And we can experience that same kind of that grace from God as well in our time of need. I don't know who wrote this uh, quote. Uh, I've looked it up. I tried to find it. You know, if you can't find it on Google, it can't be found. Found that out. So I don't know where this quote came from. Nobody seems to know. But there's a quote years ago I heard. It says, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. And I see that clearly in Scripture. The will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. So after praying two times, he deals with this. He's submitting to God. And then he goes back to pray a third time. And in Matthew 26, 43 and 44, it says, When he came back a third time, he again found them sleeping. I mean, his closest three closest buddies, not just the 12, but the three closest, Peter and James and and Andrew, he goes back, he says, he says, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them, and he went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. God, your, your will be done. When I was in Israel, I discovered something uh, that, that ties in so well with it. Like I said, the word Gethsemane means oil press. And Jesus, in the Bible, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed three separate times and his, and, his, and his spirit was pressed and there's really a, a real power, parallel to that that I learned not in Garden of Gethsemane but in Nazareth Village. And so I want you to watch a little video right now that, that talks about this. One of the, one of the uh, uh, people there, one of the guides in Nazareth Village and if we go to Israel together we'll go there uh, talks about what this means and how this whole idea of the olive press relates to who Jesus is and what happened in the garden. So watch this for about two or three minutes, okay?
1: Hello, my name is Bud, and I'm one of the guides at Nazareth Village. We are standing in our fully functioning replica of a first century olive press. We are entering the rainy season at the moment, uh, November and December, and this is the olive season, so our villagers already started harvesting the olives off of the trees, and we bring them in here in order to press them. Uh, of course, olives are hard. You cannot just press them out of way. Uh, the first thing you do in the process is crushing them. And that's why we use this big stone over here. Uh, Mosey, the donkey, is helping us move the stone around. And this stone will crush the olives and the bits. Everything needs to be crushed so finely until it turns into paste. And then it's ready for the next uh, stage of pressing. The crushed olives then are placed in baskets like the one you see over here hanging on the wall. But of course you lay it flat and then there are pockets to the sides where you put the crushed olives, preparation for uh, the the actual pressing process. And then you take about 10-15 baskets to press them together at the press. Now the baskets are brought over here and stacked on top of each other. Underneath them there's a hole in the ground that is about 2 feet deep, and it gets also a bit wider as it goes in. So as you press the baskets over here, oil is going to gather underneath. The beam of wood sits on top of the baskets, applying its weight as pressure, and then three weights, the stone weights, are lifted using pulleys and leverage uh, in order to apply more pressure on top of the baskets. Each group of baskets gets pressed three times. The first time you apply pressure, you get the best quality oil. And according to the Jewish law, the first of your fruits, you offer to God. So the oil from the first pressing, they will not use at home. They will take it to the temple in Jerusalem. The second time they applied pressure, they got good quality oil. And it was used for food, medicine, perfume, and cosmetics. By the time they got to the third pressing, though, the quality of the oil was really bad. uh, And they would use it for oil lamps and making soap. The olive press has a very strong connection with Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane comes from two Hebrew words, Gach and they literally mean press of And the olive press is a great illustration of the pressure that Jesus was under as He was praying in Gethsemane, to the point He even started sweating blood, and He prayed three times, an equal number to the pressing, and even Isaiah 53 says He was crushed for our iniquity.
0: I was amazed by that similarity there and what happened as I learned that when I was there. I never heard that before. And the thing about it is this. After Jesus was pressed and going his three times of prayer, what did Jesus do? Well, in verses 45 and 46, it says this. Then he returned to his disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I I don't know if you see them this way, but to me they're the words of determination. They're the words of Jesus said, hey, I've been through the pressing process, and now I'm determined to do God's will. He's now very sure. He's going to face the cross, and he's going to walk toward it. And what we see in Scripture as we look at the next several verses, we're not going to go into them today too much, but what happened next was Jesus came straight to Jesus, gave him the kiss. The officers grabbed Jesus and arrested him, and one of the men with Jesus pulled out a sword slashed off the ear of the high priest's servant, and, but Jesus told him, put away the sword. And, and, and then he says this to him, do you, not, do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how the, then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? And he says, I can call for legions of angels to come, but if I do that, how can the Scriptures be fulfilled? How can the Father's will be done? These are words of submission that God wants to... And so the pressing process did not break Jesus. The pressing process directed Jesus. Jesus was not some poor, helpless victim caught up in some circumstance beyond his control. I hope you understand this. This is not something that Jesus did not fully, after the struggle, go through. Jesus freely, willingly, deliberately, in a real sense, took the journey to the cross. And he was not forced into it by his father, and of course, not by the Jewish leaders of the Roman government. Matter of fact, in scripture, in John chapter 10, even before this all happened, John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, this is what Jesus says about himself. He says, I lay down my life. Not, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own account, I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. He says, you know, i choose this of my own volition. And in Hebrews 5.8, it says this, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Max Licato, once again from the Angels Were Silent, says it this way, The battle is won, and you may have thought it was won on Golgotha, which we're going to look at next week, but it wasn't. You may have thought the sign of victory is an empty tomb. It isn't. The final battle was won in Gethsemane. And the sign of conquest is Jesus at peace in the olive trees. For it was in the garden that he made the decision that he would rather go to hell for you than to go to heaven without you. That's what Jesus says for us. Now, Jesus went through great sorrow, a great struggle, but he triumphed through total submission to God's will. And he did it all for us. Now, I want to share this with you this morning. You can, you can respond to this, the fact that I've just gone through Scripture today. I just let Scripture speak for itself. Some days you can just do that. You don't even have to go along a lot of commentary. But let me share with you three things that you, could, you can respond to today. Number one, you need to understand that your life was bought with a high price. A high price. Treasure it. Offer it to God. Serve him through with all you've got. Consider what you can do for him today. So many of us come to church, and so many of us look to seek to God and go, like, God, what can you do for me? But when we consider what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, we need to consider what we can do for him because of what he's done for us. Secondly, a second response can be this. Jesus set an incredible example for us. That when we go through struggles, how we approach them is watch and pray. You want to stay strong and victorious in your life? Doesn't mean you, will go, you won't go without struggles, but what you do is you, see, you first seek God in prayer. The Lord will come to you, and the Bible says He will strengthen you through that process. Thirdly, another response for some of you, you need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Look closely at the life of Jesus and all that he has said, and you'd realize that he, only, he came for only one purpose. The Bible says he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And it wasn't easy. And he did it by dying on your behalf to pay the penalty of your sin, your rebellion against God, and my sin and my rebellion against God. And, and for you to understand that is to trust that Jesus did it for you. It's not like you have to do anything else. You have to trust that believe that Jesus today, that he did what he did, said he did, and trust in his, his plan for your life, and you'll be reconciled, made right with God. And the Bible says you will receive a new life. So this morning, as we close, I'd ask you to do something. Let's bow our heads and pray for just a moment. And as we do so, I'd like to ask you, how, uh, how are you going to respond to what God says in his word today in the garden of Gethsemane as Jesus went through this agony he went through this, this sorrow the this struggle but finally submission how will that impact your life not just today but every day God I just turn to you right now and I would ask that you would just open our eyes to what the truth of your word and you open your eyes to the truth of your word, God, that what you would do in a real sense is you would begin to work in our lives to help us to understand the incredible, the incredible, incredible uh, things that you have done for us. That you were willing, your son Jesus Christ was willing to go to a cross and be crucified and take on the weight of all the world and all the sin of all the world upon his shoulders. And to pay for the penalty for our disobedience to you, God. And it wasn't without struggle that he went through it. Because he was still, while he was here upon this earth, he was human. But because of that, God, this morning we can come to you. And we can, we can say to you, God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your incredible love, your incredible uh, sacrifice. And we'll ask ourselves this question, God, in response to that, what must I do? For those of us who have said yes to you already and have trusted you as Lord and Savior, the only response that we can make is, God, in light of what you've done for me, what can I do to honor you? And God, for those who are here who maybe have never said yes to you as Lord and Savior, never trusted you, that today would be a time when they would examine their own lives, God, and ask the question, do I need to say yes to Jesus? It's not that you have to know everything or or, or, or have done everything. Your life doesn't have to be right because God comes into your life and He has taken upon himself already upon the cross, not only the sins of the people before him, but the sins of everybody who's going to come after him as well. And in doing so, that includes your sins. And he is willing to do that because he loves you so much. He wants to set you free, set you free from the bondage of sin and disobedience to God and allow you to live a life that's whole and purposeful. And you just have to say yes to Jesus. This morning, God, if there's someone here that needs to do that, all they need to do is just in their own heart and mind right now is to say, Jesus, I want to follow you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for what you've done for me. I confess that I'm a sinner. And more than anything else, God, I desire more than anything else to follow you from this day forward. Not perfectly, but the best I can. And God, I will allow upon you to send your angels or whatever it takes to help me through the struggle, to give me strength each day with the struggles that I go through. Thank you, God, for what you've done. As we approach the Easter season this week, God, we realize, God, that more than anything else, that we need to focus our attention upon what the, the central focus of the Christian faith is all about, the death, burial, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you have overcome death, and because of that, God, we don't have to fear death ourselves because it's just a doorway into eternity. Thank you, God, for your incredible love. Guide us now this week, that we would be ambassadors for you, God, that we would invite friends and family and other folks in our neighborhood, co-workers, whatever, to come next Sunday. That's just a great first step because it'll be the easiest time of the year to invite somebody. So God, we th- we we ask that you would you would help us to have that uh, that desire. So today, God, as we sing a closing song, we'd ask that you would just. Uh, Admit our, our, our need for you, God, that we need you every hour. And we ask these things in Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Uh, will you stand with us as we sing a closing song this morning?